Deuteronomy chapter 14. <clears throat> living a life. <laughs> what would it be like to be back in these days living life for the Lord? We too need to live our life for the Lord. Here we see there is instructions given to God's people on how to live life for the Lord. Now we looked at last time we were, I was with you, we did chapters 12 and 13. We talked about real pure worship and how what that is and how that to, is to be in your life. Here he continues in the scriptures here and it goes into a little more details of how to live this life for the Lord. And we find in Deuteronomy 14.1, there's a lot of commandments that are given to them because God is always warning his people. This is what I have expect, expectations to how you live your life for me. And there it also comes warnings of how you are not to live or what you're supposed to do to make sure you're protected that so you can live this life that's pleasing to the Lord. And we have to listen to both those things, warnings, and also the encouragements to continue. It, it has both sides of the coin. Some people only want to hear the good stuff. Don't tell me anything I need to be warned about or to walk away from or don't no touchy. No, no, I don't want to hear that stuff. I just want to, what, what do I get to benefit from this relationship? But no, no, that's not a balanced life with the Lord. You must hear both to have that good living life for the Lord. And we will see that here in Deuteronomy 14 and 15. We start off by looking, you are the children of the Lord your God. Can you please read that in your Bible? Just follow it. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. So we're going to see here warnings to them because there was these pagan rituals that were taking place and things get picked up. Oh, what are they doing over there? Oh, what are they doing up on the high hill? Oh, your neighbors, they're over there doing what? And they have shaved heads. And you can get wrapped up into these things that are going on around you that are religious things. And that God is saying to them, stop it. This is not how we live our lives. I don't care if you call it religion. I don't care if it's your God. No, no. I'm telling you from my word, you are the children of the Lord your God and you shall not do these things. I don't care what everyone else is doing, but you are not to do it. These pagan burial customs that are going on. And it was common in those days to cut yourself. In, in, in honor of and, 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 do, and, and we're seeing warnings as well not to tattoo dead people on your bodies and as they, through these burial rituals. You are not to do these. These are warnings to, that God gave the people not to live like the pagan world. Or shave the front of your, your head in, uh, for the dead. You don't, you don't do that either. Now, if you want to go back, you can see in many places in the scriptures referencing this thing that you're not to do. You can In the Old Testament, we see it in Isaiah 3.24, Isaiah 15.2, Isaiah 22.12, Jeremiah 16.6, also in Jeremiah 
5, Ezekiel 7, uh, Amos uh, 8, Micah in 1. I mean, there's not just one spot. And so people are, I don't know, is that one spot? Does it really apply to us today, you know, kind of a thing? But no, just read and understand because among Christians today, there's something wrong in our burial customs are just as ritual and ungodly in many ways. Paul warned us in the New Testament, if you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, who are dead, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We as Christians have hope. When we die, we know exactly where we're going to go. So we should not mourn and do the things like a non-believer should be doing in regards to uh, responding to death. We should have an encouragement, especially if the one who died knew the Lord and they were in the presence of God. We should be celebrating the fact that our loved one is in the presence of God. That's where we all want to be. But many times people act like there's no hope in your life as a believer when it comes to watching everyone else out there who doesn't have any hope. So we may certainly mourn the passing of our loved ones, grieve the emptiness and those things. That's, that's, that is absolutely true and normal and good and right that we have that proper grieving. But as for those who have eternal hope in Jesus, we should be different in our mourning because it should quickly turn to praise and honor and glory because we know where we will be absent from this body will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's the mind of understanding what the scripture says. In verse 2, we see commands to, for the separation. To have this living life, the life for the, the Lord, we must separate ourselves from people who do not live according to things of God. So in verse 2, we see, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So he's not talking about just, just a few people that we're talking about. We're saying this is all the ones living on the face of this earth God says I have separated you to be a special treasure and so the idea behind this holy or separate yourself from the rest of the people uh, the people of Israel were people separated unto the Lord you were being separated just to do your own thing you were separated to serve God to live your life according to the way he wants you to live that's what you do you don't separate yourself and, and, and create your own little utopia world and, and only certain people around you that you hand select no no God says to live for me and uh, that is what is pleasing to him when I mean when he means a holy, you're a holy nation. We see that referenced in 1 Peter 2:9. You're a holy nation. You're representing me. You live for me. And so that's the expectations for his people. And he has chosen, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself. So that means the people of Israel were chosen by God to be his own special people. And is Jesus as we also are chosen people. We see special to God, but you are a chosen generation, as he references, or what we refer to as his own special people. You and I are his own special people. We see that in 1 Peter 2.9. We also see that we are also his inheritance, just like they were his special treasure to God at that time, the people of Israel. We, in Jesus, we also are his special inheritance. We see that noted in Ephesians 
chapter 1, verse 18. So we can see how God has played this all out in, in setting an example of the nation of Israel and then those who uh, believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. We see that we're his special people. We see that we're God's inheritance as well. Now when he talks about above all the people who are on the face of the earth, I mean it's an incredible, glorious privilege to be identified by God as a special people. I think many times as Christians we don't meditate on the fact that God, how God sees that we're his special people. That we have special privileges. We have, we have a, a, a whole different life of living. How we live our life is so special and glorious because of his grace and mercy upon our lives. But with that special privileges comes special responsibility, does it not? It does. We have special responsibility. If God regarded Israel as something special among the nation and all the nations that are on the face of the earth, we too have to conduct ourselves and is special among God's people. We are to live a certain way. To please God. To bring light into this fallen world of how people should see your life and say, that is obviously has to be a Christian. That person is living for God. That person is so bright and, and just joy and peace in their life and living for God. This is important that we see these things. We also see in now in, in chapter 14, verses 3 through 21, we see that not only were they supposed to commands for separation from the people who uh, that are the rest of the people on the face of the earth there, but we also see that they're supposed to separate themselves even regarding how and what they eat. And we see that in regards to foods here, verses 3 through 21, follow along. These are the animals which you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with clo clo cloven Hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have clothed hooves, you shall not eat such as these the camel, the hare, which is the rabbit, right? The rock hyrix, uh, uh, for they chew the cud, but do not have clothed hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine, that, that beautiful pig-like food that we like eating today, uh, is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, and you shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, and you may eat all that have fins and scales, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All the clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, the kite after their kinds, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the, the hawk and of their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher, uh, 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 the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe, and the bat. 
Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien, a foreigner, someone who's not part of the, of the Jewish uh, nation, who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So a few things here. Obviously, only certain mammals were allowed to, to be eaten by his people, and the rule was very simple. An animal that had a hoof that was divided and chewed the, the, the cud, they were acceptable. But if there was not one or the other, it was unacceptable. Example would have been the camel or, you know, or the rabbit and things. You think the rabbit chews its cud, but it has paws. It doesn't have a, a hoof. And you just kind of think those through as you read through this. But they were considered unkosher if it didn't meet the requirements. Unkosher in the Jewish faith, you know, touchy. You can't eat it. And additionally, the swine was, had a divided hoof, yes, but does not chew its cud, so it is considered unkosher. Now, what's interesting is for some of you seafood lovers, uh, in, back in those days, if it didn't have fins and didn't have scales, you can, couldn't eat it. So you oyster lovers and shrimp lovers and, and, and crab lovers and lobster lovers, oh, you'd be saddened right now if you were back in those days and as a Jewish part of the Jewish nation. Of course, birds was an interesting thing because it really fell down into three categories you could not eat. The predators... They both ate fish and the, the blood of animals. So you couldn't eat a predator. You couldn't eat a scavenger, unclean, because they were carriers of disease and they regularly contacted dead bodies. So you don't touch a vulture. Um, and also potentially poisonous or dangerous foods such as shellfish and the like. They were, to, again, they were not to be part of the diet of, the, of God's people because, yea, one of the reasons is, is God says no, because if God wanted his people to stay healthy and to keep healthy in those days. And it says that you shall not eat anything that dies of itself. So if an animal dies of itself, it has been properly, has not been properly bled. We've taught that before, that it needed, if you're going to kill, you had to be properly bled. And if you didn't, it becomes unkosher. You could not eat it. Now we went back, if you wanted to go back and study a little bit more of that, Leviticus 17.11, when we studied that book, we can talk about the whole blood and present and the life, and that the life is in the blood, and the uh, principle of that, and the life principle belonging to God and God alone on that, and the dietary laws, and we studied that in great length. So I encourage you to go back and listen and read and study Leviticus. Also at the very end here, when we read about you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, this is a kind of an unusual law for sure. Uh, it was commanded and, uh, because it was part in something they did with pagan fertility rituals back in those days. And it's, 
it was one of the dietary laws of Israel that you shall not touch and shall not do. Uh, even today, the law, the rabbinical interpretations of that, even today, the rabbinical laws, you cannot have a kosher cheeseburger. <laughs> you were not going to have one a kosher cheeseburger because there's a, it's the meat with the cheese on it because they they believed oh the meat with the blood that could have been there with the cheese that was where milk comes from and you can't put that together you're just not going to find a kosher cheeseburger then or today. Now we see also after going and looking at making sure you're separating yourself away from. Uh, non-Jewish uh, population in regards to how you live, to live for the Lord, how you're supposed to, what you're supposed to eat. And again, how you eat really would have separated yourself from the rest of the population. It's very distinct. People wouldn't have understand that as a pagan world. They ate everything with the blood, blood, cheese. They had the probably double, triple cheeseburger uh, for sure with uh, lots of cheese and burger together. They wouldn't have mattered to them. But for the Jewish people, it sure did. Now he talks about the command of tithe, the giving to God. It says here in verse 22 and 23, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where we, he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil. Of the firstborn of your herds and of your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So in this new section here, talking and giving out how you are to live your life for the Lord, this was important to God and still is important to God today. You shall truly tie. The word truly is important in this description because it describes giving 10%. You, it is not, uh, back in these days, you, uh, tithe means tenth. You are described to give a tenth. And command, God commanded, this was not an option if you feel like it or not, but God commanded that it really be 10%. And one might easily imagine Israelites discovering ways to give God less than truly 10%. And the, and the fact that they're breaking the commandments of God in those days would not have gone well. And he describes that as you increase, you have to increase according to the percent, not according to how you feel or what you want or do not want to give in regards to the amount of seed, the grain, and the oil, and all these. Because it means assessing the income, not on total assets. So we're looking at making sure as it increases, you're giving too appropriately to the Lord. And you shall eat before the Lord. So when the tithe was delivered to the tabernacle, so you can imagine them hauling it all in if it was a good harvest and the increase was plentiful, you're hauling it to the tabernacle, to that, that the place of the gathering, and later on, obviously, the, to the temple. But the portion of the tithe was enjoyed as a ceremony meal with the Lord as the people gathered, bringing their tithe to the temple or to the tabernacle, and there was a, it was a the remainder of it was able to give as a it was given to the priest to help them provide for them because remember they didn't have their own land they didn't have their things they relied upon God's people to provide for them to minister as a priest. 
Now you may learn to fear the Lord is an interesting part at the end there at verse 23 because it's a reverence and understanding who's in control and who provides for us. God's always wanting to make sure we learn to fear the Lord your God always, to remember what you've been given and the increase and the abundance and the provision is because God has provided it for you. Not because you're so smart, not because you were really good at deal making and your craft is so great and, and your abilities and strength and all these things that people rely upon, their might and their power. No, no, no. We rely upon the Spirit, says the Lord. We rely by what He does it and through. And it, we, in awe of what God has done and is doing through us to provide, that was the purpose of the tithing, to build an honor and reverence for God. Why do we tithe? To build and honor and reverence God in our life. Because it's giving, it's, it's taking away. And it's one of the hardest things as people grow and learn to, to live for God is to give to God freely and joyfully. And to teach you always to put God first in our lives, we see that there in the end part of chapter 14, verse 23. Now he talks about what happens if you're long distance? What happens if you live far away and you can't haul all that seed and grain and oil <laughs> to the temple or to the tabernacle? So we see right here, there's some instructions, verses 24 through 25, about this, this how this tithing for a journey. It says, but if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. It wasn't your choice where you get to take the tithe. God made the decision where you bring the tithe, and it's to bring to where he is meeting, where he's going to minister to you. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for ox or sheep or wine or similar drink, uh, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your, your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So again, the long distance, since the tithe was to be brought to one place, a designated place, that was the primary place. They would be so far away that some were too far. They could very difficultly to try to do that. They could convert that to money and exchange it for that money for that distance would prevent it. Obviously, much easier to transport uh, than the animals. But they could take that tithe money, exchange it, and they would use the money to tithe with when they come to the tabernacle or, of course, later the temple. But notice that what's the result of it? The result is God says, you shall rejoice. You should have joy when you give and you bring, regardless if it's the grain and the oil and the animals, whatever form it is, or in this case, long distance, the money to exchange, it should be always do it rejoicing. And it's a, such a reminder for me this week as we don't get in even in a, a, a routine of just, oh, yeah, I, I sent my tithe. That's great. I, I got my tithe. I, okay, check. I got the tithe sent in. No, no. We should be rejoicing. 
We should be just praising God that we could and can bring something to him for his purpose and glory as we come. It is a form of worship. It's a rejoicing to give. And we should have that attitude, that mindset when we do give to the Lord. Because the law is like this shows us that God is a has this like common sense God. Even though people say, oh, how what is God expecting me to bring all this oil? And no, no, he made provisions. He's a common sense God. He doesn't place unreasonable demands on his people. He made a way for them to be more conveniently tithed to meet the command that God has given them. Sometimes people say, oh, that's just too much. God has told me I need to do this. It's just, it's too much. It's too heavy. It's too whatever. And I say, Seek the Lord on it because God, your God doesn't, is not un, unreasonable. He's not, he's a common sense God. He's, seek him and make sure you understand what he's asking you to do. Because we know in the scriptures who our God is. And he will never give you something that you cannot do. He'll never give you more than you can handle. He's never going to ask you to do something that he is not going to equip you and to supply the power and the wisdom and, and ability and directions and all the resources necessary to accomplish what he's saying for you to do. Even right down to the subject of tithing. Now in verses 28 and 29, we see the, a very specific uh, time in regards to tithing, it says here, it's that third year tithe is referred to. It says here, at the end of the th every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or, nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So God's thinking outside of just you. Remember, the tithe is not just about you. And your and increases and in productions and more fruit than you ever thought and, and more of this and more of that. You always think, oh, I'm just being blessed. No, you have to understand, God is never just about blessing you. He's asking, will you, I say, bless you, will you be instruments to bless others? Will you be a, just a pass-through of an instrument for God's glory. And so here it's a commandment that speaks of a, of sometimes people think it speaks of another tithe on top of the tithe we were just talking about, sometimes referred to as the poor tithe. You have to set aside some additional for to give to the poor. And it's supposed to be happening every three years. But yet, if you really look at this, it says here, at the end of every third year, you shall bring the tithe. It's the tithe, the, the main tithe. That's, it's, I believe in what the scripture is saying. It's the same tithe we were just talking about. In the third year, it's the same tithe, but you have to do something very specifically on that third year with the tithe that you bring. And that is to bring here, since it was, is, it was to bring, bought to the Levite, and not only to the poor, it had to be brought to those who were uh, in the ministry serving as a Levite. And it was so, it's not an additional tithe, but a command that at that third year that it would be available to be used for the poor and not only to the Levites in a special way. It's set aside distinctly for that purpose. And why did he do that? Because the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. So God will bless the giving heart. You can't outgive God. 
And so ask anyone who gives as the Bible instructs them to give, they are blessed. It's just how this, we read the scripture, we see the scripture, and even in your own life, as God, as you matured as a Christian, you understand tithing, you understand giving to God, and how you are blessed because of that. God has always provided for you so faithfully through the years. I'm sure you see that. Now, how does the New Testament uh, uh, talk about tithe? Well, we see that nowhere specifically in the New Testament is the tithe <coughs> commanded. But it is certainly does speak in a tithing in a very positive light in the scriptures. It is done with a right heart. We see that in Luke eleven forty two. So it's, yes, talks about you giving the tithe, but it speaks more of the attitude or the heart of doing it, and it's supposed to be with the right heart. It also is important to understand that tithe is not a principle dependent on the Mosaic law. Many people teach that you do it because the Mosaic law says it. That's not true. I mean, it's referenced in the Mosaic law, but that's not where it started, because in Hebrews chapter 7, when we just studied that uh, just a few months back, uh, verses 7 and through 9, explains tithing was practiced and honored by God before the law of Moses. So the tithing started before the law. So many people try to say, we're not under the law, that means we don't have to do it, blah, 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 blah. And I always tell them, no, it's before the law, so you have to speak to, you know, go back and read the scriptures and know the scriptures in regards to, to tithing. But in the New Testament, it does speak with great clarity of the principle, not only with the right heart of giving, but that giving should be regular, planned, proportional, and private. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. That it must be a generous, freely given, and cheerfully given, clearly stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So people say, oh, what am I supposed to do? I always say, go back and read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, 2 Corinthians uh, verse, uh, chapter 9, and it will speak of how the principle of giving and how you to give and make sure your heart is right. Because in the New Testament, it doesn't emphasize tithing. One might think... Um, I find, I find with maturity comes clarity and understanding and a joy to do what God is asking us to do. But as a new Christian, as a baby Christian, as an immature Christian, many times you find in those struggles you argue against this tithing thing for self-interest of why you don't think you have to give to God uh, and, and they think it's giving it to me or giving it to the church. No, you're giving it to God. It's a form of worship. But as you grow and mature, you obviously you, you will find that it speaks giving to proportionally. It's not so much the 10%, even though it should, since it says planned, proportional, it should be, on a regular basis, it should be a based on a percent. And under the New Testament, I believe it says, God may ask you of more than the 10%. It could be less. Whatever it is, it needs to be in that proper heart of regular, planned, proportional, and private, and cheerful, and freely giving, and generous. Those are the most important. So as we take a look at that, you can work through that. But our question is, is 
maybe how little can I give still be pleasing to God? That's usually a very common uh, question that people ask. Well, I, I want to give. I, I think I know I need to give. But how much do I have to give? And to what? You know, like, can you give me the bare minimum? Where, you know, God says, when you're ready to give it cheerfully, then do it. If you're ready to freely give to God, then you do it. I can't speak to you how much. That, that's between you and the Lord. Why? Because we're not under a strict amount as it is the right heart of giving. Because giving and financial management is a spiritual issue, and you can see that throughout the Scripture. It's not just a financial one. that We go back and see that noted kind of in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. It is really being good stewards of what God has provided for you. Now, verse 15, Deuteronomy 15. We see a change, a subject here, dealing with people. And when you're living your life for the Lord, you might be someone who has been blessed, and you might be someone who is has found yourself in making decisions or find yourself in a position of being poor and in these days become a slave to the rich or slave to a owner because you couldn't pay your debt. And so God in his wisdom um, for the benefit of the society, look what he has put into place, which is wonderful wisdom here. It says at the end, chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 6, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. So God says to his people, Israel, money was always this, always loaned with the understanding that every seventh year, debts would be cleared, would be canceled. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful today? You bought that, that new house. Can you imagine all of a sudden be canceled at the end of seven years? And some of you are like, yes, not a 30-year, not a 15-year mortgage. No, it's, it, any debt has been, has been canceled. And there would be, never be a permanent class of underclass in Israel. Because people find themselves, even those days and these days, find themselves in a bad 
timing, bad situation, a bad, they got sick, they couldn't work, they now have nothing to produce, and only the way they could make a living is to work their farm, and now they can't work their farm. Now they're putting themselves in a position because of that sickness, not because they made bad decisions, not because they weren't wise with their stuff, but because of maybe situations, they found themselves in a long-term kind of debt, but knowing that that, that debt would end at the seventh year that that would be canceled. Money could never be borrowed or owned more than six years so that they could have a fresh start in getting their life back together when it comes to being in debt. And it was called the Lord's release. And that's an important matter because this is not someone's decision, but it's God's decision of how the society and how his people were going to treat one another. And it was him that says, you must let it go. You must release. It was a, 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 an obedience to a commandment that God said it must be done. Because there never would never be a permanent underclass in, in Israel but it must be something that allows people to rise up and to regain this properness within the system or within the society. Because God established an economic system. He established it. Wherein no one had to be chronically poor according to God. It didn't have to be chronically poor. If people would obey the Lord, he would bless both the sovereignty and the natural results of obedience. God would have blessed them, and they would not be poor. In Deuteronomy 15, 11, we know in here, we'll get to that, that in just a few verses down here, it says, for the poor will never cease from the land. Well, is that a contradiction to what he's saying here, that there's no chronic poor? Well, it says that people, there should not be a chronic poor, but does it mean that people won't make bad choices constantly putting them in the position of being poor? And so there's those struggles between that. But God says, I can provide for you and bless you and keep you from that if you would listen and live for me. If you live your life for the Lord, you will not experience that is what he's saying to them. But some people still continue not to live according to the ways of, of God and not be obedient, resulting in the fact they put themselves back in a poor position. And at the very end there, he says, you shall lend to many nations. See, Israel obeyed and the individual citizens of Israel enjoyed blessings from God that the other nations did not experience. But God's people experienced wealth and prosperity like no other nations around them. And when that happened, they would as a nation be prosperous and could bless other nations, but they can lend money, but they never had to to borrow money because God's blessings upon that nation. Now we see here to how they're going to treat the poor in verses 10, 7 through 11. It says, If there is among you a poor man of your brother within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need not his wants, his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, saying the seventh year, the increase, the year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. 
You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him because of this thing. The Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, to your poor and your needy in your land. So this law of release on that seventh year was never to be used to discourage giving to those in need. The law might discourage lending to the poor. Therefore, God wanted Israel to understand to be generous givers regardless. Don't play the game. Can you see you're coming up and someone's in really tremendous need and you do the calculation and say, man, if I lend this and like... In six months, the seventh year is going to hit, and I'm going to I'm going to lose out on this. I'm not going to give anything to him until it starts fresh again. That kind of trying to strategize is what God is saying. Don't strategize. Don't calculate the seven year and see if how you're going to benefit from this or not benefit. Just freely give. I'm going to replace it. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to have your hand open. And it starts with your brother, those within, within. Look at your brothers who are around you. Make sure. Don't go be looking outside of the nation. Look at your brothers first in regards to the needs. Take care of the people next to you, to the right or to the left. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Some people say, I, God has blessed me, I want to give, Pastor, where, where do you think it go? Pray and watch how God will open your eyes to your brother, your sister, who is in fellowship around you, who has need. And then you can just secretly give and just with no... just. Provide and whatever that need is because you heard it being said or stated or you're here there was a challenge and we were praying for whatever. God will show you how to bless someone with whatever it is that you want to give out. How many washers and dryers that God has blessed people with? I'll ask count. Pastor, we have a washer and dryer. We are going overseas. We can't. It's brand new. It's only about a year old. We didn't think we were going to be PCSing. But do you have anyone in the someone in the church that could need it? And I go, yes, because someone just told me last week that they had a need and we're praying for a washer and dryer because they can't afford it. And all of a sudden, within, within a matter of days, they've got a washer and dryer and bless their brother and sister as they moved on. That happens all the time. Or we get blessed when someone comes and says, can you give this to someone but don't let them know and we give it to the church and we deliver it so that they don't know who gave it to them. But they heard they were in need. And they, God put on their heart to bless them in that way. Now, these things are the joy of, of how God's working in and through the fellowship. It's a beautiful thing. Chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember, notice that, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. 
What a beautiful thing here in regards to as a slave being released every seventh year they to be able to release those who were in debt and as a slave and paying back by serving uh, serving the master who gave him the money to be able to provide them and keep them because they cannot afford it. So even as debts were to be canceled every seven years, so were slaves to be freed every seven years. The slaves thought of, of here are those, again, who put themselves in this position because they had to sell themselves to provide because they were so poor. But God said, no, no, people are not going to stay in this position their whole life. They're going to be set free and the seven-year uh, rule was happening and when not only when you release them okay fine you're it's paid up in seven years fine you got you can go no no when you send them off you're going to give them provisions for them to have resources to go and start their new life again what a beautiful thing right so you can't just use them and abuse them and then kick them out no 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 you're going to take care of them, provide them, because they're going to be working for you and helping you make all this money and provisions and work your land. And then you're going to give them a portion of that as they leave so they can start a new life. But notice here in 16 through 18, the law of the bond slave. And if it happens that he says to you, the slave says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take in all uh, and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise, and it shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So here you are. It's been seven years, Corey. You're free. You're going. Here's your portion. You've been here with me. And I say, please, I don't want to leave. I will continue to serve you. You've been a great master, great house. I've had a great life. Everything's fine. I want to continue to serve you. I never want to leave. He says, great. Pins me up against the, the doorpost, takes that wooden awl, and takes the hammer and puts it in, and pierces the ear like never before. Bam! Right to that doorpost. Now I've got the circle. You know how some of those big people stretch those earlobes and make a big old dangle? I won't go off that tangent. But you imagine the whole, everyone knows that is a bond servant. He chose, she chose. I want to continue to serve in this family. And they would be prosperous and they would continue to live. And again, we know historically, some of them were the doctors, they were the accountants, they were managing the entire household. Look at, look at Joseph in, 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 <laughs> in the entire Egypt kingdom. He was second command. And he was a slave made so wise, so good, that Pharaoh said, you can run my entire place. That's amazing, is it not? So here we see that they make a choice, they agree, and they become a slave forever to serve their master. It's interesting that pagans had a custom of branding the slave with the name or the sign of the owner. But Paul says it this way in Galatians 6.17. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear, on, bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says, you know the mark that I have to show that 
my master, I'm going to serve my master the rest of my life. I've committed my life to serving him, committed my life to give it all to him, is the marks on me, is my sign of my commitment to my Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, verse 19, the principle of the firstborn here. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God, and you shall not shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So it basically says this means set apart for the Lord. This firstborn, it needs to be set apart. It's the best. And the, even like with the firstborn animal, it was not used for some regular domestic animal. It says you shall not do work with this firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. So, um, and there's kind of like three reasons for this. We studied this in back in Exodus, if you remember Exodus 4:22, about God's firstborn that honors God with this firstborn. It's giving it to God and giving to, to honor that. Second was because the firstborn was thought to be the best, and the best was always to be given to God. And finally, it was a reminder to all generations that when God redeemed Israel, his firstborn. And it reminds me just now. Do you remember the incident with, with Pharaoh, let my people go? And didn't he say to them that these are my people, these are my firstborn, let them go? And remember what happened when Pharaoh said no? What happened to their firstborn? Their firstborn died, did they not? So it, God says, don't mess with <laughs> that is mine, he says, and, and how I, I, my commandments and how this all is played out. And I'm, I, he, God is serious. He's not messing around here. He's not wishy-washy. He makes things clear that he says, you must sanctify to the Lord God, not to anybody else, not to the mother, not to the father, not to the family, not to the, but that for every, these are my children. This is the firstborn males would be sanctified to me. And I should have said verses 20, 20 through 23 will finish, and you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God year after year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there is a, a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sanctify it to the Lord your God. You may eat it with your, within your gates. The unclean and the clean persons alike may eat it as it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. So, though when the firstborn animal was brought to the tabernacle or to the later on to the temple, given to the priest to be inspected for the sacrifice unto the Lord, that portion of that sacrifice went to the family uh, that brought the animal, and it was given so that they could eat joyfully in a ceremonially in celebration of what God's provision and, and the celebration of who God is in their life and joyful celebration through that meal. And if this was the case of if any defect on the animal, the animal was given to the priest but not sanctified to the Lord because it had to be spotless. And if it was redeemed for money and the money was given unto the Lord. So they had that exchange so that it wasn't the animal that had defect. It'd be an exchange there and the money then would be given to the temple to, for the use of the temple as like a sacrifice. So again, there's a living, living life for the Lord 
how we study the Word of God, He gives us parameters. He gives us guidance. He, he, he guides us every step of our life. How important it is to have that sensitivity and understanding as we read the Word and ponder on things before we make decisions, before we go places and change of life and careers and all the things, how we give money and how we spend money, all every aspect of our living. May it be reminded that God is the one that we should go to with all things and receive and and give guidance of how we are to do it. If we're really living for the Lord, that means you, you go to the Lord with all things, regardless of how small or how large. May we mature and grow where we learn to take all things to the Lord for the living. Amen?